0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. I'm Marianne Mason, the Dean of the Graduate Division, and I'm most pleased, uh, along with the Graduate Council, to present Dr. David Mumford, this year's speaker in the Charles and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, this very important bequest, which we've had for many years and therefore it has become substantial, we're obligated to tell you how the endowment supporting the lectures came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways the campus is united to the history of California and the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the gold rush, where he opened a thriving private practice, and did quite well. In 1885, Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long held interest in education. But it is his daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, who greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley making it possible for us to present a series of lectures. Just a little story about Colorful Lily. Uh, When Lily was five years old she was in one of the many fires that occurred in San Francisco and she was rescued by a fire company. um, Company number five and she became their unofficial mascot for many years. And then as she grew older she actually flirted with many of the firemen and had, well we won't go into that, but was associated with many firemen. But as her gratitude to firemen for saving her for the fire, and I guess for her uh, continuing association, she established Coit Tower. Coit Tower, should you have ever wondered about it in San Francisco, is erected in the form of a fireman's hose. Enough of Lily. (laughs) (laughs) The hitch Talk fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. If you look at your uh, program, you'll see the names of science and thought in American education and life. So, thank you, Lily and Charles. And now, a few words about Dr. David Mumford. As a distinguished mathematician, Dr. Mumford's achievements have been notable. He has made fundamental contributions in the study of moduli spaces of Curves and algebraic varieties yet he has always been fascinated by the processes of thought and computation as well. Bringing these emphases together over the past two decades he has collaborated with computer scientists, psychologists and neurobiologists in search of the quote right mathematics for describing the problems of perception. Dr. Mumford received his BA magna cum laude in 1957 and his PhD in 1961 from Harvard University. His most recent writings include include two and three dimensional patterns of the face and Indra's pearls. He has received numerous awards, including the field medal, the highest honor in mathematics. This medal is crafted of gold and bears the head of Archimedes, along with the famous quotation, and now I'm going to ask poor sister Catherine, my eighth-grade Latin teacher, to excuse me, transperi suum pectus mundique potiri," which means rise above oneself and grow grasp the world, appropriate for all of Dr. Mumford's career, and certainly a noble aspiration for all of us. And so it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Mumford, who is currently a university professor in the Division of Applied Mathematics at Brown University.
1: Thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, I'm, I'm very honored uh, to be asked to, to give these lectures and um, a little bit uh, daunted uh, by it. Uh, I'm much more accustomed to addressing uh, a professional audience and I'm hoping not everyone here is another. I see many faces that are fellow professors, but I uh, I prepared these lectures under the assumption uh, that indeed I was talking to uh, uh, an audience of non-mathematician, non-mathematicians, and uh, that I should be uh, should try to lay out the mathematics uh, in only slightly technical ways, uh, so that it, it would uh, introduce and make exciting uh, some mathematical ideas to this uh, this broader audience. Uh, this actually, I think. But you've got here for free, thanks to Lily. (laughs) Um, But I I have to say that, um, uh, as a mathematician, uh, uh, I'm painfully aware that mathematics is uh, is viewed uh, as an esoteric discipline that is only vaguely connected to real life. often in in ways that are not really understood and remembered as a painful adolescent rite of passage. Uh, So uh, to me, of course, mathematics looks so different. Uh, It looks uh, like uh, an incredibly beautiful uh, subject which underpins our our science and technology and provides uh, simple and elegant ways for for grasping what uh, William James called the blooming, buzzing world, bombarding our senses. uh, this is not a new thought. Uh, oh. Hmm. Oh, what's happening? Okay. Right. There we go. There we go. Um, yeah. So uh, back uh, in the seventh century of the Christian era, uh, it's nice to see uh, <coughs> coming out of the Dark Ages a uh, appreciation uh, appreciation of number. Take away number in all things, and all things perish. Take calculation from the world, and all is enveloped in dark ignorance. Nor can he who does not know the way to reckon be distinguished from the rest of animals. So tell that to your high school students and children who are struggling with their mathematics. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so my, my plan, there we go, uh, is in, in two parts. Uh, the lectures uh, are tied together by a couple of, of connections uh, but uh, are generally speaking on different, quite different topics. Uh, so the first lecture is centered around the idea of uh, linear versus nonlinear uh, ways of thinking. Uh, and I want to b- uh, begin this lecture uh, by... Uh, d- describing a little bit of that i learned from a, a marvelous uh, book uh, by alfred crosby called the measure of reality uh, in which he makes a very convincing case as to what was really instrumental in turning western civilization uh, from uh, uh, from a backward uh, civilization in the uh, forests of europe uh, to a uh, an advanced technological society that uh, one where, for better or for worse, um, totally controls the world now. Uh, so then the, um, uh, the, second, the second lecture, so then I wanna go on in the first lecture, I should say, to, to talk about some nonlinear things which I've been involved in, and in particular, a very beautiful, symmetrical kind of nonlinearity, uh, which is, happens to be this book, uh, which we just published, which I thought I would take the opportunity to publicize. <laughs> um, Okay, and in the second lecture, I want to talk about what I've been interested in more recently, uh, trying to understand uh, from a mathematical perspective what thinking is all about and contrasting logical and statistical approaches uh, to thought. All right. So... Uh, so around 30 it's interesting Uh, I always thought that nothing really happened at all till the Renaissance but it it seems that um, that already in 1300 uh, you you see so this is Crosby's thesis that somehow or other Europe fell in love with measuring things more accurately that uh, that what took hold and made the difference between our our route to technology and science was that they they really uh, began to measure and to use measurement in their lives. So, uh, so here's uh, the primitive, I, I uh, this thanks to the web, you know, the web is so fantastic. Uh, I, I mean, I could have spent two days in the library trying, but the web, I brought this up. This actually is the, is the, uh, the effective mechanism in the early clock uh, there 's there's a weight a, uh, wrapped around the shaft is going to be a heavy weight with a rope, so the shaft is trying to twist, and what happens is that that toothed wheel is pressing against those those two little uh, thing, thingies there, that one and that one. Uh, and one of them locks at a time. And it, so it pushes it uh, counterclockwise first, uh, and then it'll click to the The next one will fall and, and break the wheel, and then it'll push it back clockwise. So the top thing will swing back and forth. Uh, and this incredibly primitive oscillating mechanism uh, was uh, the way people first began to do it. They actually, towns spent the, the equivalent of an entire year's revenue, tax revenue, to build these things. They were hugely expensive. People were hugely proud of them, and they were good to about 15 minutes a day. Uh, of course, uh, people also began to measure space. Uh, so we, uh, you probably, in art course, have seen Giotto's perspective it was introduced. Uh, but in measuring the earth, these, uh, these charts appeared. And you see what's, they have, they use polar coordinates. They're, they're particular points here on the coastline. So this is, this is, by the way, you see that's France and Spain coming around, there's Gibraltar down there and there's the Mediterranean in here. Uh, so uh, they would get the bearings. You could sail off from one spot and with every compass heading and figure out where you hit land. And so uh, you've got these, uh, these overlapping, uh, polar coordinate representations. um, And uh, these became the very thing uh, for navigating then. Uh, But money is just just as important to count. I mean, when it comes to counting and keeping track of things, uh, well, they they invented the whole idea of money that wasn't money, uh, phony money, namely in banks, money of account. Uh, And they invented double entry bookkeeping. Here's from the prints uh, of this double entry bookkeeping comes this marvelous Description by Pacioli uh, about wh- uh, how you should conduct your life. I mean, what could be more organized? He says, here's how you begin. In the name of God, on the 8th day of November 8, 1493 in Venice, the following is an inventory of myself, of Venice, Street of the Holy Apostles. And so he tells you what you should list, including your spices, dyewoods, and pelts in your warehouse. Uh, uh, it was clear they like to keep track of things. And, I mean, that's the, uh, uh, the characteristic of this uh but much much more uh there was a whole uh, the the scholastics uh uh proposed actually uh, that you should measure lots of things so heat light color the things that were not measured for quite a while. Certitude, we will come to in the next lecture. Uh, virtue and grace, we uh, still don't know how to measure too much. But uh, color, Newton, I guess, was the first to measure color. Uh, but they proposed these things could be measurable. Uh, and why not? Uh, we can uh, put a quantitative spin on all these things. So me is a tremendous figure in this part of history. Uh, so in 1361, he actually invented graphing. What, so he, he actually um, uh, he plotted against time uh, various quantities uh, like position and velocity. Uh, and, he, and he understood this basic idea of calculus about um, the slope uh, being the derivative. Uh, so in particular, he, he came across this beautiful application of the mean, um, mean value theorem, uh, that if you have uniform acceleration from one velocity to another, the result is the same as having constant average speed. Uh, This was what Galileo later on used to derive his law for falling bodies, but it was already known uh, to arrest me. So uh, this was an an incredible period in which mathematics was really part of everyone's life, and, and people began to quantify everything around them that they could. Okay uh but to move on what really i think got our uh civilization going uh was the uh You see, the clock was a pretty crummy clock, uh, 15 minutes a day. And why was that? Well, there was Galileo sitting in the cathedral in Pisa, uh, looking at this light swinging. Uh, I don't know why it was swinging, but that's what the story is. Uh, And he noticed that the period with which it swung back and forth uh, was the same regardless of whether it was taking a big swing or a little swing. That was the, in my mind, uh, in the most important discovery of the whole modern science. Uh, so the idea that, that the period of the swinging of, the, of that pendulum did not depend on how far it was swinging. I mean, it sounds like a sort of an odd connection that you might stumble on. This is a picture of the, uh, uh, the clock that, was, uh, that he sketched and was, was later built by Huygens. Uh Huygens it, it was a, a, an improvement of two orders of magnitude. Uh this BC because uh you d- uh, so why was this uh what's so great about this? Okay, there we go. So we have t- so now we're making Erasmus graphs. Uh we're making uh pictures just just like Aresme did of position against time, and we're contrasting uh these two uh these two oscillators. Uh, so in the, in the blue is, is basically this, um, this virgin folio affair that uh, and it, it would be, um, one would call it, a, I think today, a relaxation oscillator. I've actually, that's Van Der Poel's oscillator, it's graph. But uh, it's, it's kind of like the clock. You see, it moves along slowly, and then, ka-chung, something is released, and bang, it gets into another state. So it's like flipping between two states with a sort of a, a slow... Uh, uh, change in the middle, and this is known to be an incredibly flexible kind of oscillation, but one subject to many parameters. So it, it, it's uh, it's uh, it's easy to create one, as they knew in the, in the 14th century, but uh, hard to really control it. Uh, whereas the red one uh, is this beautiful sine wave, uh, which you see if you graph the uh, the tides coming in and out. Uh, uh, and almost any, uh, as, as Hooke uh, realized, if you have a simple uh, spring motion. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the math- math- mathematical theory of it was really only worked out 75 years later Uh, But I think this was a typical example of a physicist and a mathematician. The physicist got the idea. Galileo wrote his results in the form of dialogues, and there weren't any equations in them, although in many words he would describe what was happening clearly enough. But he was typical of the physicist's point of view, an intuitive, clear, uh, elementary understanding of things. Huygens comes along and does it be- beautifully elegant mathematics proves everything with classical geometry and shows, in fact, that the way to make the pendulum really good uh, is to make it swing against a cycloid, which corrects for the nonlinear, higher order uh, inaccuracies of, of Galileo's discovery. Uh, in a way that was completely impractical. <laughs> uh, so in any case, the, the thing which was practical was uh, the simple harmonic motion, which is, which is simply the law that the acceleration of the pendulum should be the, the negative of the displacement. So it moves backwards, it, it accelerates backwards. Uh, when it moves to the right, it accelerates to the left, and uh, that decreases the velocity and turns it back ultimately. When it moves to the right, it accelerates to the left. Uh, right, so so that has the result given by the red curve um, okay, so my contention is that we can really make a, a, a beautiful story out of this that uh, that in many ways. Uh, Uh, A very large percentage of our technology stems from this discovery. Uh, It was actually Peter Lacks that pointed that out to me. He said, what's, I I said, why are you starting your calculus book with differential equations? He said, it's because the simple harmonic oscillator is the most important concept. So uh, I believe him. So, uh, so what's, uh, there are a couple of points. The, the first is, is simply that the future is predicted uh, by using where you are now and your rate of change. You see, so here it was back there, acceleration proportional to displacement. So you know where you are, you know your velocity, uh, that predicts the acceleration, it predicts the rate of change of your velocity, your velocity p- determines the rate of change of your position. So, okay, it's a differential equation. But better than that, it has this magnificent property, and this was Galileo's discovery. If you increase the swing, f of t, uh, it doesn't change the shape of the curve or the period. So if if, uh, an oscillation of one size solves the equation, we double it, it still solves the same equation. And if f and t solve it, so does their sum. It's this, this uh, so that's what linearity is all about. Now, why is it important? Well, it's the only reason you can hear everybody talk in a cocktail party, because what's happening? In a cocktail party, everybody's voice is being superimposed on top of everybody else. And in the air, these are basically uh, the simple harmonic oscillations with different frequencies uh, they are uh, they're combining linearly and your ear is then decoding them by using the fact that, that they are a linear superposition. Uh, and you then can separate out the, the different uh, harmonics. You get uh, formats for vowels. You, uh, you get the characteristics of different voices and you hear every, uh, who's talking to you. Uh, it is also the reason you can buy a frequency. I mean, the aborigines and uh, the American, the original Americans uh, thought it was bizarre that Western Europeans thought they could own land. Well, what's more bizarre than owning a frequency? But why can you sell a frequency? It's precisely because in the ether around us, uh, there is a linear superposition of every signal being put out uh, everywhere in the world. Uh, you can combine them linearly and you can take them apart linearly. They're, they're all they're all there. They do not interfere with each other. But even more than, than that, I think uh, one of the most astonishing ideas of linearity is the idea that uh, of Schrodinger that you can have a cat in a box which is with 50% chance uh, which is a superposition of a dead cat and a live cat. (laughs) All you do is you turn your back uh, and you trigger a little needle uh, to some bit of radiation uh, that uh, some subatomic event uh, controlled by quantum mechanics Uh, and that event subatomically is a linear superposition of, of two things happening. Uh, And when the needle kills the cat, the cat is then in a a linear superposition of being dead and alive. It's a very weird thing, but quantum mechanics says that the world itself is linear. We can add a dead cat and a live cat and create a state of the world. Um, Whether this will ever impact our lives is not clear, (laughs) but uh, with um, quantum computing, it just might. here's some linearity uh, from my boat this summer uh, <laughs> uh, it was kind of, uh, it's kind of beautiful to to see uh, such a good approximation to sine waves uh, a very still night but with uh, this beautiful ripple uh, and this is actually a superposition again of ripples with slightly different angles uh, causing these sort of dead spots in it like here you see whether they uh... <laughs> um, they cancel each other out, and other cases where they they um, they double. So uh, it's it's a nice uh, linear superposition in water waves. Then, uh, however, uh, we we didn't we have not stayed in the linear world, uh, and uh, uh, so uh, some very. Uh, you can argue, you can go back to many things, but certainly one in a very seminal event uh, happened in 1834. So, John Scott R- Russell, who was a, a British uh, scientist, uh, was riding one day. So, this is the quote from him I was observing the motion of a boat, which was drawn rapidly along a narrow channel when the boat suddenly stopped. Not so the mass of water in the channel. Which it had put into motion, assuming the form of a large, solitary elevation, a rounded, smooth, and well defined heap of water, which continued along its course, apparently without change of form or diminution of speed. I followed it on a horseback and overtook it, still rolling along at eight or nine miles an hour. Uh, so I. They're called solitons, to the, from, in fact, to this day, from this uh, solitary elevation, these waves. These are not linear waves. If you double their height, they go faster. Uh, so they, 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 they absolutely disobey. Uh, you cannot, uh, you can, uh, to some extent, superimpose them, although they interact uh, strongly when they collide with each other. Uh, but uh, if you're lucky, they come out the far side still intact. Um, These, um, he was a Scotsman, these, um, so in his honor, the Scots uh, recreated his wave here. Uh, So there's the canal over there that they they chose this, uh, there we go, there we go. This this beautiful straight stretch uh, with uniform bottom and so on. And here is the solitary hump of water. It's hard to see because the light's reflected in it, but you can see the profile, it's coming up to the edge of the dock. And it's all—it's it's come here. They're chasing it from behind instead of on a horse. I don't know why they didn't get a horse, but it's—it's uh, uh, it's rolling along, and uh, you can see how uh, everyone is—is is, uh, beautifully amazed by this. Uh, now, interestingly enough, uh, it has displaced the linear principles now, and when you talk. Uh, Across the ocean and so on, uh, on fibre optics, uh, the the signals are sent uh, precisely uh, using these solitary waves um, uh, because uh, you can you can do this at such an unbelievably high frequency. I mean, the advantage of you want to uh, to get to uh, to. To, to very high frequencies, so you can pack more bits in, uh, and uh, this has turned out to be this uh, discrete form of sending pulses in the form of these solitary waves this has turned out to be a much more efficient way of uh, of sending messages long distances now what uh, so nonlinearity is uh, is really uh, uh, today a uh, omnipresent in people's uh, study of, of many many of virtually every every applied mathematics and pure mathematics um, i just again thanks to the wonders of the web uh, uh... pulled off some uh... a random conference that happened recently that had was nice to to post uh, some of the uh, the illustrations in, in in the conference. So you you have these uh, nonlinear effects uh, in uh, in in water uh, here and here. Nonlinear effects in sand. Nonlinear effects in uh, the flow of drainage and the interaction of the the soil and the water. Uh, it's quite. Uh, It's quite uh, common that you you get in these effects uh, these uh, uh, repetitive patterns, but often patterns that repeat uh, with varying scale, uh, as shown here, and uh, patterns which take advantage of the complexities of space. So one of the real uh, intrinsic nature of of our space is is this possibility of of spirals, Uh, and the nonlinear effects produce these in spades. Now, what is really, in some way, the the uh, the origin uh, of these uh, nonlinear ideas? Uh, so, uh, the origin of these ideas is is basically that you can you do something uh, relatively simple to something, but something which is which is not linear, which involves some sort of. Uh, of, of twisting and folding. Uh, and you repeat it many times. So, uh, so if you, um, uh, you can take almost any uh, nonlinear transformation and repeat it many times, and amazing things will happen. So one of these nonlinear uh, effects which has been studied uh, is uh, what's called the Baker's transformation. It means you, t- you take a piece of dough, you squash it flat, and you fold it over on itself so you do that many many times and you create filo uh, pastry uh, and you um, uh you put a little butter in between it tastes good uh... but <laughs> That's, uh, with apologies, this is Nancy Capel. Uh, it's, it's a shame, I actually never asked her her permission. Uh, uh, but we, have, she, we, we happen to have this database of images. and So we're, we're gonna show you what happens with a baker's transformation. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna squash uh, this. So imagine that all this is is a pattern in the dough. We're gonna, from the top, squash it halfway down, uh, and then we're gonna twist it and bend it around on top of itself. So that's what's happened. So you can still see her face here, her eye and her mouth, her hair is twisting at the top, is twisting around. Uh, But now we're gonna take this, we're gonna squash it down a second time and fold it up. So notice, I wonder, you see, what's gonna happen to her chin here? Uh, So that's down here. Having gone from uh, from yeah, from here to here, when we do this a second time, you see this will be squashed down, uh, and this line here is going to go over here so let 's have a look there you see so so her face is over notice some parts of it, however, are, are quite intact, uh, that eyes is, is there. Uh, Uh, Other parts are being uh, stretched. So in here, we're we're stretching hugely in this direction and we're compressing in this direction. We're compressing many layers, which actually have come from different parts of the image here together. Uh, So uh, you repeat this and um, uh, essentially, you can still see bits and pieces. That eye has a tendency to persist. Uh, I think this has pretty much destroyed anything recognizable in the face at this point uh and this goes on uh, so um, right uh so uh oh look at that i didn't i have not I did, by the way this is only the second powerpoint lecture i ever gave so i have uh, uh aha i've made a little blunder here uh i see the second comment there uh so uh, the key point in this, uh, this kneading technique uh, for the dough is that you're squashing it in one direction and, and stretching it in another direction. So this is known as Lyapunov exponents. Your, some differences uh, decrease. So in some ways, two systems which were dissimilar get closer when you do something nonlinear because you've squashed uh, the difference between them, but other differences get expanded. Uh, And so this has been known as the butterfly effect in weather, that if a butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the world, it may cause tornadoes in another part of the world. Uh, It's perfectly, although I don't know if that's ever been. um, uh, Weather is a tricky thing. I mean, in that it's not, it's semi-predictable. But uh, in any case, this sort of system uh, has this effect that tiny differences uh, in where you start Uh, can magnify uh, hugely uh, after a certain amount of time goes by. So this is characteristic of this nonlinear world. Now one would say that the nonlinear world uh... is uh... it seems as if all bets are off We now have such a gigantic uh... amount of uh... things that can happen uh... are there any organizing principles that help you see some pattern and uh... uh... and perhaps beauty uh... in this nonlinear world so there is another organizing principle. Uh, now, linearity has this basic property that uh, anything, any smooth object, if you look at it under the microscope, if it's a smooth piece of steel, uh, of course you get down to the atomic level and it's not smooth. But let's assume that we mathematicians had control of the world and they could make smooth things, truly smooth things. They would have the property that when you look at them under a scanning electron microscope, they would not only look smooth, they would look flat Because a smooth thing, the closer you get to it, it just begins to look flatter and flatter and flatter. Uh, So, uh, now, this property of their getting uh, uh, more and more linear under magnification, Uh, why not twist it around and say, imagine that there is some aspect of complexity which repeats itself uh, when you look more and more closely at it. So no matter how closely, you still find uh, intricate structure. All right, so that's certainly characteristic of our world, as the beautiful book, Powers of Ten, uh, of Philip Morrison and his collaborator uh, showed, uh, where you see the universe over, I don't know, some 50 powers of 10. Uh, you see complexity on almost every scale. Uh, but there's uh, in that case, this complexity is perhaps not so easy to describe. There's a possibility of something which, which is describable. Namely, suppose it happens that when you blow it up and you look at the, at the complexity uh, in tiny parts of it, uh, that what you see is, uh, is similar uh, to what you saw in the, in the hole, that, this, that, uh, that the small parts have the same similar structure to, to the entire uh, hole. So uh, that was popularized by Mandelbrot, but has occurred in uh, many, many uh, applications of science. Uh, It actually was observed in biology uh, in this doggerel of Jonathan Swift, uh, so naturalists observe a flea, hath smaller fleas than on him prey. And these have smaller fleas to bite them, and so proceed at infinitum. So I don't think there's a better uh, expression of self-similarity in the biological world. Um, I'm not quite sure what, is that 18th, 19th century? No, it must be 19th century, because there were no microscopes, right? Anyway. Um, uh, uh, however, this uh, notion of self-similarity, uh, and now I have to apologize if this offends anybody, but, uh, uh, but there's a religious aspect to self-similarity, which actually I wasn't uh, that aware of until my co-author, Carolyn Series, uh, pointed it out. And it was, it was so totally convincing Uh, that this self-similarity is exactly the essence, uh, one of the essential core ideas of Buddhism. Uh, I don't know, Hinayana or Mahayana, anyway, the the trend that went through Tibet and China. Uh, So here in the words of uh, Charles Eliot is this expression of this notion in, in Buddhism, every object in the world is not merely itself, but involves every other object and in fact is everything else. So the idea was a single hair from your head in a certain profound sense, is you. Uh, now, uh, leaving aside the spiritual aspect of that, uh, it, is, it is asserting, uh, on a certain level, an incredibly strong self-similarity in the world. And um, for that reason, uh, uh, when we wrote our book, uh, we, uh, we called it after Indra, uh, <laughs> who... Um, uh, although it was originally a Vedic god, was adopted by the Buddhists and has this uh, magnificent uh, uh, metaphor uh, associated uh, to him. Indra was the god of, of thunder originally in, in, uh, in the Veda, god of the sky. So in the heaven of the great god Indra is said to be a vast and shimmering net, finer than a spider's web, stretching to the outermost reaches of space. Strung at each intersection of its diaphanous threads is a reflecting pearl. And the glistening surface of each pearl are reflected all the other pearls, even those in the furthest reaches of heaven. In each reflection, again, are reflected all the infinitely many other pearls, so that reflections of reflections continue without end. Uh, so this, uh, this, I put to you, is exactly uh, a description of uh, what Felix Klein uh, discovered uh, some 120 years ago. Uh, and called Kleinian groups. And here is uh, one of these uh, uh, depicted. So uh, I'm cheating a little bit. So um, I don't know if anyone will catch me on this, but, uh, but you can see uh, there, are f- uh, there are these. Uh, uh, wait a minute, how does it work? Yeah, okay. So there are six uh, large uh, red pearls here. There and then the three in the middle here uh, and reflected for instance in this pearl you can say, I'm colorblind so I'm not going to name is that green uh, whatever it is uh, there are uh, one two three four five of them the reflections of the other five in the sixth and now you look for instance in this pearl uh, and I'm going to lose track because these 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 are, this, these are these are the first order reflections. these are the second order these are the third order reflections. so if we count these guys, uh I'm not going to try to do it here, but it, uh it, uh wait a minute now, so right, so we should have in here yeah so we so we have five of these guys, and reflected in each of these are going to be uh yeah, you see. Uh, 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 right. In, so I should have the five reflections in here. Anyway, reflected. I'm not. Uh, uh, it should work out. <laughs> It'll work out better in the next one, which is e- easier to comprehend. We, uh, okay. <laughs> the main point is that Klein uh, came across a mathematical uh, situation uh, in which uh, this. Uh, infinite iterations of a very simple family of non maps uh... came up in an extremely natural way now, uh... to contrast this i want to make one important distinction here so if we go back uh, here, we have uh, the self-similarity of the small parts can be of two kinds. It can be statistical or asymptotic. Uh, In the case of of smooth things, it becomes asymptotically a straight line and it's exactly the same as itself. But in finite levels, it's only approximately similar to what it started with. You can have statistical things like clouds, which have uh, every detail is different, but when you zoom in on them, they have exactly the same statistics. We're dealing here with self, whoops, oh, I'm the wrong one. Uh, self-similarity of an exact form, exact under a nonlinear transformation. Uh, so there is a key uh, a nonlinear transformation behind it, uh, and this was uh, Klein's uh, original PhD thesis. Basically, his, his synthesis of geometry uh, was that. Uh, Geometry consists in the study of of congruences and and congruent things don't have to be identical, they just have to have certain properties that are the same. So the same can be uh, uh, with respect to certain transformations. Uh, And interestingly enough, Klein's famous Erlanger program, and this is again an observation of Carolyn's series, was uh, Lewis Carroll's uh, Hunting of the Snark came out about five years after because uh, of Carol was a mathematician, as you know, uh, about five years after Klein's speech. and he, uh, I would say it's quite reasonable, her hypothesis, that Carol had, had knew Klein, and this particular part of Hunting in the Snark is taken from Klein, because it's a beautiful poet- poetic embodiment of Klein's idea. You boil it in sawdust, you salt it in glue, you condense it with locus and tape, still keeping one principal object in view to preserve its symmetrical shape. So, uh, here's a little illustration of it. Uh, So, the... uh, No, wait. There it goes, okay. So, the... um, uh, This is uh, Dr. Stickler, we call him. Uh, So, he is being moved along uh, by this nonlinear spiraling motion with his feet on what I think might be a green line and his head on a red line. Uh, And he's being sucked into this so-called attractive fixed point uh, as time goes on. And then in a second, he's going to go backwards too. Uh, So he has an an infinite uh, trajectory. He is simply there to show you the motion, uh, which is, is going to be embodied. Uh, so here he is. You can see the, the nonlinear distortions are huge, but, uh, but incidentally, every angle in him is the same. The, the angle in the crook of his arms, if you measure it, uh, is going to be identical here as it is here, even though the head, of course, r- relative to his feet, is like Greenland in a Mercator projection, uh, which also is, preserves angles. Um, okay. So, uh, so this is the basic ingredient for Klein's work. Uh, Oh darn! What's happening? Uh, So I have to give uh, credit here to my third, second co-author, that uh, is Dave Wright, uh, who is a genius at doing these things. And we're going to see a series of MPEGs. uh, He's just in the last couple of weeks, because of these talks, has been putting uh, 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 these ideas of these Kleinian groups uh, in uh, in MPEGs. Uh, So. There are two parameters in here I want to mention. You can, the speed at which Dr. Stickler moves can be varied, and the amount of spiraling uh, that he does uh, in order to get closer to the attractive and repulsive fixed point can be varied. So there are two parameters uh, forming one complex number, which, which underlie uh, each of these, uh, these basic symmetry motions. Okay, now what Klein started with Uh, And what produces this interesting uh, uh, interaction of symmetry uh, and and chaos uh, is that he had, suppose you have two motions at once that you're trying to track. Uh, So we have the uh, original guy here, and one one transformation is gonna move him along this whole path. This is a slowpoke, this guy, it moves him. There's no spiraling in this picture. It moves him simply uh, from this repulsive fixed point to that attractive fixed point, so that he has a steady motion here. But this other guy has suddenly boots and moves him in one step to there, and in the second step, he's already too small to resolve. He's way back in that cluster there. And if you go backwards, he came uh, from here and from down there. Now, the point is that you can combine the two transformations. So if you first uh, do this guy and move him backwards and forwards here, you have this. And now we take that whole collection of Dr. Sticklers and move him by this motion, you get this whole chain of guys. And you move him another time and you get a whole chain of guys which is in here. Or you can do it in the other order. You, now, it's a little sparse to see, but if we take the... This is another one of his trajectories from there to there to there to there to there. And we move that by this transformation. It now becomes a trajectory uh, from in here to here to here uh, and the rest are invisible. And we apply this transformation a second time and it goes from here to here to here. So uh, so we have what's called a free group here, uh, two generators. Uh, there's a tremendous number of places he can go. Uh, and as uh, Bill Thurston and others have remarked, uh, if you wander around and walks like this, you better take uh, Ariadne's thread with you or you're pretty darn likely <laughs> to get lost. There's so many, uh, because uh, as you go, uh, uh, you can, um, uh, you see the problem is that if you uh if you take motion a and motion b you get to a different place from taking motion b and motion a and so uh you uh if you take motion a and motion b and you try to go backwards by first reversing motion b and then reversing motion a you're not going to get back to where you started so uh this is uh uh, the Dr. Sticklets form a tree here. You can make a tree out of this whole thing. Uh, these arrows, you can see that the arrows, uh, this is one branch of the tree and another branch goes this way. But you see, we can go from here to here uh, or from here to here. There's a, there's a, there's a, a tree with four branches of the middle and at every intersection, it has three branches that go out. So uh, from here, there are three ways to go forward and one way to go back. You can see that that's a pretty difficult maze if, you, if you're going to, you need to just write down how you got there. <laughs> okay, now uh, what I wanted to, uh, uh, I want to say when we did, we did, we did this about uh, 25 years ago, uh, we, we plotted these pictures and we had this incredibly primitive equipment, this so-called tectronics terminal, which was uh, uh, state-of-the-art sort of thing. And we had this flickering green light that went across it and, and traced these graphics. We, we had the idea, let's, let's do this. Let's take these transformations, S and T, and look at all the places uh, which you can get to and see what they look like. That's what's called the limit point set. The limit point set is, is a thing uh, which is mapped to itself by both S and T. The way you should think about this Uh, The way I think about it is that S&T, it's like a marriage. You have two people that try, that have different uh, ways of moving, uh, and they try to get together, and sometimes, they form a marriage which is which is relatively cool marriage. They keep up their own paths and they don't bump into each other very much. Sometimes they have a marriage which gets really complex and Baroque and they interact in incredibly complex ways and the picture gets complicated. Other times, what they do together is so totally uh, uh, chaotic that they get divorced. And that's, so th- what's happening here, we're gonna find exactly this in mathematics. The two transformations, S and T, Uh, they can do very simple things together. But they can, uh, you, they can, uh, interact in complex ways and produce things which look like those fractal patterns that we, uh, often observe in nature. And these can get more and more complicated. So, okay. So here's the case where they keep each other at arm's length. Uh, okay. So we're tracing this tree. Now the nice thing about this tree is that there's a natural, uh, direction, uh, uh, in, in which we can traverse it, uh, and uh, so uh, now these these, these circles are, are like the original pearls, uh, and and moving down through a series of the pearls, uh, you get to one of the limit points. you, you have a reflection of a reflection it 's not really a reflection, so that 's where i 'm cheating but uh, you, you get to the uh, the ultimate limit point uh, but now. What we want is that the two transformations are uh, a little more intimate with each other. Uh, and so we ask that they touch each other now. And now when they touch each other, those limit points, uh, instead of being uh, uh, like an isolated set of little islands that they can get to, uh, become a continuous curve. Uh, it's Basically, a circle uh, which is tremendously crinkled in itself, and as we're going to see in a little while, uh, we could we could have illustrated it earlier on, but the illustration is more powerful in in a second. Uh, We're going to zoom in uh, to this limit, uh, so-called limit point set, and we're going to see that it exhibits this exact self-similarity. Why is it self-similar? It's because this. Uh, This glowing curve here uh, has the property that both S and T take it to itself. And S and T are maps which do a tremendous amount of expanding and shrinking. So the big features of that curve are going to be repeated endlessly in the smaller features. Okay, Uh, So, uh, Yes, here we go. So at this point, uh, this is gonna trace this curve. So now we're putting spirals in. We had no spirals in the previous uh, thing. We just let them kiss. But now they're both kissing and spiraling. Uh, And in fact, the circles can't even be drawn in this situation. When this curve finishes, We're going to take a telescope, a microscope, uh, and we're going to to, uh, zoom in on the thing. So notice the features it has. Uh, Basically, it's dominated by this big curly Q uh, because one of the transformations does exactly uh, that. Now, we zoom into this part of the picture, and we see that it has the same shape completely. We zoom in again to another part of the picture, and it still has the same shape. We zoom in again, and they ran out of patience. We could have zoomed, could have zoomed 10 times, actually, uh, straining the floating-point resources of the computer. Uh, but the, uh, you can see that this has precisely uh, this fact. It has exact self-similarity. Uh, in what sense is it exact? It's exact in the sense that this spiral we could find one of this very small family of, of what are called Mobius transformations, uh, which would make this spiral look uh, precisely like the spiral of, of the original uh, curve that we started with. Uh, everything is, uh, repeats itself endlessly. Uh, another beautiful thing can happen uh, in this situation, uh, a, uh, there we go. Uh, so a new kind of symmetry is present in this picture. So no, this is this. Now notice that these circles. So we have a, a repetition of this circle, and that circle, and this circle, and this circle, and this circle, and so on down to here. And when this is finished, we're going to come up from the far side. Uh, and so what you're going to find is that there is a, now uh, a, new, a new kind of symmetry, which you can see, condense it in sawdust and boil it in glue. It's kind of, it's not bad, uh, it kind of looks like. Uh, th- this chain of circles uh, is, is an infinite chain starting here and going out and coming around again. And a second infinite chain goes the other direction and the beautiful thing is that you can put both chains together and produce a, a picture which has both symmetries simultaneously. In fact, this picture can be produced, if you start with this big circle and those two circles there, you can produce the picture by looking at the inscribed circle between these three here. Well, this is, there are actually two, in, this is equally an inscribed circle between these three. Uh, and then you go on and, and put an inscribed circle between these three, that's that, an inscribed circle between these three, and that's that, between these three, and that's that. You continue putting inscribed circles everywhere, and you generate this sort of foam. Uh, so, uh, uh so this is characteristic of, uh, of another kind of, uh, symmetry. Uh, okay. Now, uh, now, th- now this guy, so, um, I mean, you, you get a little bit carried away by this. I, I hope you share my um, enthusiasm for this uh, watching these this, uh, because the, the dynamic aspect of it makes you think, my God, what an amazing uh, dynamic is, can produce something so elaborate. So, so notice, we're really tracing what mathematicians call, uh, it's, it's almost a simple closed curve. It, does cro- it never crosses itself. It touches itself uh, from time to time. But we never lift our pen from the page, uh, and we get the uh, curve like this. So this is a situation where we have a combination uh, of uh, spiraling and uh, and the so-called parabolic uh, transformations. And if you were to move it backwards to its original uh, incarnation as a, as, a, as a curve with an interior and an exterior, you would find that half of these circles are inside the original curve and half are outside. And the, the curve has collapsed in such a way that both its inside has become a union of circles and its outside has become a union of circles. Uh, so, let's see, Ellen, I'm going to need your... Oh, uh, uh let's see. Are we coming to the next one? So now we're, um, uh, so, um, well, you know, <laughs> we've got to switch from uh, Bill Gates. Uh, th- don't worry, don't, don't hurry, because, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> um, right. Uh, this crashed uh, PowerPoint, uh, and so, but QuickTime came to our rescue. Right, now click on figure eight parts lower. Uh what? No, where are you? You've got to click. you gotta bring it down. Yeah, that's it, right. Click on that. Uh, there we go. Okay. Uh, no don't do that. Just leave it down. Now go and, and click on this down here. <laughs> That'll start it. Whoops. I'm sorry that it, it I, I forgot to rewind the movie, darn it. that's uh, so you saw the punchline. Uh, so so the point is, uh, so here is a marriage in which the the, the couple has decided to try out everything. <laughs> <They> <laughs> Sorry, these metaphors are getting the I don't know some people here I can see. Uh, but um, uh, the, for a long time in the 19th century, there was a controversy: could you get a continuous mapping uh, of a circle of a, a circle into the plane or into the two-dimensional sphere? which moved around in such an irregular way that it touched every single point in the plane. Those are known as piano curves. Uh, and they indeed exist uh, they were first made rather artificially and little did Felix Klein know I think, uh, maybe he knew I'm not sure, uh, that he had these uh, piano curves uh, under his thumb in, in, in his constructions so this guy is so busy uh, he, and he has this wild, uh, crazy scheme of his own, I mean you can think how, how does this moving point know uh, and he might say he, uh, he's forgotten a few places like here and here well, he didn't actually. Uh, that was our computer that ran out of steam. If our computer uh, didn't run out of steam, those little filigrees would have come in and curved into there in circles, and these would have curved in, and this actually would have been completely filled in. So this would fill in the uh, the entire plane uh, uh, if, as I say, our, our computer had been a little little stronger. Uh, it. Um, um, just to sort of, uh, uh, you know, put a few buzzwords on it, it's known, uh, so th- th- just to tell you uh, how mathematics can have these incredible connections with itself, uh, believe it or not, this thing is connected to, is, is related to knots you can make out of string. One of the simplest knots you can make out of string is what's called a figure eight. And that figure eight knot is connected to this in the following way. That curve is is, is filling the plane, and so, but, you you imagine the plane wrapped around a ball uh, uh, so that it comes around and and has one point at infinity uh, which at one point this this curve will touch at point at infinity but but now you let these S and Ts, these symmetry maps, act on the inside of the ball which they can do, they they move the inside of the ball around we take the way they move the inside of the ball around uh, and we we identify uh, every point with, with where it goes under S&T. We, uh, we, 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 another way of thinking of it is you, you take the inside of the bowl and you cut out of it a sort of a heart which has the property, uh, it's like that place that Dr. Stickler was sitting. Uh, it moves to places disjoint from itself under S&T. You glue it together and you get a, th- a, a three manifold which is exactly uh, the complement of the figure eight knot. Anyway, whatever that means. Now, Ellen, um, could you click on the background? uh, Are you still there? Click on the background there uh, uh, once, and now go down and click on the little slidey thing, and we'll get back to PowerPoint. A little to the left. Beautiful. Yeah, right there. Yeah, okay. So I have have one last... Yeah, click. What? Why doesn't that work? You should click... Ah, there goes. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. All done. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> that was perfect. Okay. Um, right. So we have this uh, this beautiful thing, a piano curve. Uh, so it's um, uh, this is like, sort of like a, a piano curve found in nature, as opposed to these artificial ones of the nineteenth century that were that were obviously very man made and, and and very sort of uh, like buildings going left and right and everything. This one is okay so a last a last point um the um uh there were these parameters in the groups that tell you whether s and t uh are really uh to what extent they're interacting with each other and whether they're causing chaos. So I should say that there is a, you can look at all the parameters in in S&T and what you find is there's a region uh, in those parameters in which S&T really produce total chaos. Probably there are some patterns there, but it is not obvious what patterns you can, what sense you can make of them. Uh, Then you have the S&Ts which are uh, moderately connected to each other, and those that are right on the edge of the chaotic space, so b- another thing you can do, which is kind of fun, is you can imagine uh, taking a uh, a flyby in the space of parameters so we look we, we now are going to look at the limit set produced by the transformations, but we 're going to vary the parameters in the two transformations and make a movie which shows how the limit set varies uh, as the uh, uh as the parameters vary. And uh and this this really blew us away when uh when we first saw it. There we go. So so what we're doing is we are moving in uh what's called trace space uh uh here uh al- along a certain trajectory uh so that the uh uh the limit set Uh, develops, uh, you see what's happening here, let's do it again, I think I'm just going to do it again if I do this now yeah, Uh, notice that the spiraling comes and goes, you see at certain points uh... Uh, and the spiraling comes in, in, in complicated patterns. Uh, if we get closer to the boundary, to it, it's even more impressive. But we weren't able to get it done uh, in time for this, this lecture. But uh, what's happening is that you're moving towards situations in which these transformations are acquiring a, a tremendous amount of spiraling. And then you move away to the places where it's more uh, rectilinear. Uh, and all of this has encoded in it a beautiful sort of numerology having to do with uh, with rational numbers. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, so uh, that's as, a, uh, as much as I wanted to say. We um, I, I, I wanted to say that we wrote this book with a, a goal in mind, and it was when we did this mathematics. Um, it wasn't really mathematics. What we did was to realize that we, that there were, we could implement mathematics uh, in, in computer graphics and, and make tangible mathematics that Felix Klein had done. Uh, and what occurred to us was that this was a piece of mathematics which is really very easy to explain. Well, it's relatively easy compared to almost all other kinds of mathematics. Namely, all you need to do to really understand this, you need to know about complex numbers because uh, complex numbers are inherent in the formula for this spiral. Although even for that, you could skip if you just want to know the geometric effect of them. But, the, but uh, you need to understand what the, this idea of looking at symmetry in terms of, of uh, repeating two transformations, S and T, in various orders and where you get to. Uh, and then you need to combine them in this, this fundamental class of spiral motions. And then all you need to do is play. So, uh, so we wrote the book with the idea that uh, it was something that, for instance, a bright high school student, any uh, computer uh, hobbyist who likes to program for his or herself uh, could, uh, could easily read, uh, to, to say that there are certain things, I mean, there are questions we could easily raise here which, which are really on the frontier of mathematics which have not been solved. Uh, but the book tries to show that uh, a big chunk of this is, is not uh, in any sense as complicated uh, uh, as, um, uh, as the proof of Fermat's last theorem, for instance. Uh, thank you. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Professor Mumford. Uh, Professor Mumford has graciously agreed to answer some questions. So if you have a question, if you'd like to come to the microphone, I could stand up there if that's okay, please. yes. Don't be shy. come to the microphone. It's so stunningly clear that there's a no question. <laughs> okay.
1: Jerry, you've got to ask it. Good. You'll embarrass me if you don't. <laughs> I, have a, I have a real layman's question now. Yeah, good, good. That That's what I want. I don't quite understand the relationship of the stick figure to the reflections of the pearl. And ah. it seemed like you have combined them. I mean, they look like yeah. The- yeah. Uh, okay. I, I know that was uh, that's that's true. That was slightly confusing. You see, if you if you reflect twice uh, in a mirror, uh, it's actually seeing yourself. Uh, you see, in a reflection, uh, you reverse left and right. But if you reflect twice, it doesn't reverse left and right, and you uh, you you get one of these motions like like S and T. So uh, so what we're doing is is not simply taking reflections upon reflections. Uh, what we're doing is we're taking these transformations, S and T, and we're repeating, following one S with a second. Uh, so uh, yeah, maybe I can go back for a second, make it clear. There we go. That was it. There. OK. So, uh, so you can think. Uh, uh, of what's happening here that you start with this guy and it's, it's not that we're, uh, we're reflecting him and seeing the reflection of the reflection in here uh, we're simply moving him forwards by S uh, arbitrarily many times and backwards by S uh, and forwards by T and backwards by T. Now you can connect this to reflections if you have uh, if you start with a collection of, re- of reflections um, uh, we can follow one reflection by another reflection. Uh, take those pairs, and we get uh, we get mappings like S and T, and you can get an exact cor- correspondence between them. But I agree that, that that the link, as I've explained, it was not exact. Uh, what might some applications of this be to science or technology? Uh, yeah that's that 's a good question, as they say um, so it 's of course uh, uh, amazing when uh, when you find a piece of of mathematics that is that comes really out of algebra and geometry that has uh, a, a really immediate um, uh, relevance to the real world i don 't actually um, uh no of this this is really a piece of, of pure mathematics uh the um, so i'm afraid to say that you see what we've the, the, certainly the idea of self-similarity is is something which is present in uh, in thousands of areas of applied mathematics in investigating the effects of nonlinear things in the world. Uh, What this mathematics has done is it's taken this idea of nonlinearity and it's it's made, it's idealized it in this pure geometric setting uh, where, uh, as far as I know, it does not actually have, maybe I'm wrong. Am I wrong? Any mathematician want to contradict me? Uh, I don't know of any application. And we, you, you have to live with that. Sometimes the math um, connects, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, who would have thought prime numbers were gonna connect to the real world until they discovered this encryption algorithm using prime numbers. So this is the piece of math waiting for its application. Tomorrow I will tell you more about things that really are full of applications.
2: So, I was wondering, if you look at the self-similarity in a continuous space, yes. you expect to find infinitely many levels of self-similarity. Uh, that is, yes, but if you look in a discrete or even finite space, you'll expect to find only finitely many levels of self-similarity. Now, we can then pose the question, in the physical universe, which case do we find ourselves in? I think it's the latter, isn't it? The, the latter being the
1: continuous or no. the discrete.
2: Oh, you think it's the discrete? Because, because, no, I think both because, occur. Because we, we, even if you look with two opposite mirrors, Yes. Oh, okay. Because okay. of the no, fact that you question. have had it, right. yes, yes. So really I right. don't have
1: infinitely many levels. Yeah. So I think the answer to the question is that when we said we would look at self-similarity, which was geometrically exact. Right. Uh, then we, re- we pretty much restricted ourselves to something which was, which was discrete because a continuous group of symmetries uh, really only leaves you very elementary-shaped objects. We need a discrete group of symmetries to get really complicated objects. Uh, but if you instead look at statistical self-similarity, uh, which is going to arise tomorrow in uh, one example, uh, you then find that there is a... Um, uh, you can easily have self-similarity under a continuous infinite group. So, for example, you can scale by an arbitrary uh, factor uh, and get statistical self-similarity. But and that, that does occur, in, in, indeed, in, uh, in, the, in the real world. Uh, I mean, so-called conformal field theory in quantum mechanics is, yes? What does it mean to say that, that it
2: occurs with infinite many levels
1: of... Well, you see, it's not that self-similarity of, uh, uh, of one uh, ideal rigid object uh, under these transformations. A statistical self-similarity means you have a family of similar-looking things, like clouds. And you can take a cloud and you can magnify it by any factor you want, and then you can take certain statistics, like, like correlation functions of uh, whether it's cloud here or sky here. Uh, I'm thinking of things like um, a... Uh, um, you know clouds which I mean some clouds of course are, are different but which, which have, uh, have fine structure uh, and, and so you can, you can measure a statistic of, of, of the, the, the texture of that cloud and you'll find that that statistic is the same when you blow up the cloud I mean, Mandelbrot has many instances where he looks atoms. at the coastlines of, uh, so you could, instead of these curves here, we can have the coastline of some place in the world. We, uh, we blow it up by a certain factor and and we measure similar geometric properties of it, and we find the statistics are the same. So the details it, it, are, are different. They're
2: but the same over many orders of magnitude, yes. but you get to the level of atoms, and then Ah,
1: it, all right, that's, okay. That's a reasonable point, so. Um, of course, when we get to the atomic level that's uh, but we could have uh, we can imagine uh Uh, models of the world in which we have uh, continuous statistical symmetries at at every conceivable scale. I mean, like we can idealize it. Now we come to how well that model applies to the world. The symmetry still doesn't have rigid levels. It isn't like level one, level two, level three. It's a smooth series of levels, but it breaks down when you've gone a certain number of orders of magnitude. Yeah, so that's a very good point.
0: Well, if there are no more questions, we want to, again, thank you for a really stimulating presentation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.